A cup of wine that's drunk in time is a, a cup, cup of wine that's brisk and fine. If only your Hamlet had been as brisk, Will. <laughs> Master Ben. It lasted longer than any man who ventured a viewing of your place. No more, good William. Good Ben, hold thy peace. Let us drink to the general joy of the old table. To the monarch of the vine. To the, the monarch, monarch of, of the, the vine. A song to the monarch of the vine. And let me the canic and clink. And let me the clack and clink. A soldier's a man, a life's but a span. Why then let a soldier drink? Clink, clink, and then let a soldier drink. And let me the clack and clink, clink, and let me the clack and clink. A soldier's a man, a life's but a span. Why then let a soldier drink? Clink, clink, why then let a soldier drink? Clink, clink. This drunken evening took place sometime in 1616. Recorded in the diary of John Ward, vicar of Stratford-upon-Avon. Shakespeare, Drayton and Ben Johnson had a merry meeting, and, it seems, drank too hard, for Shakespeare died of a fever there contracted. William Shakespeare was buried in the Holy Trinity Church in his hometown of Stratford-upon-Avon on April the 25th, 1616. 52 years after he'd been christened in the very same building. And though Will was a Stratford boy, born, schooled and buried there... It was in London, where he found fame and fortune. My name is Mark Zakian and I'm joined by Laura Adams, founder of Women Inspire... And in this podcast, we tell the story of William Shakespeare's London life. As an actor, writer, poet and leading dramatist. Hear about the theatre that made him famous. The actors and writers who were his friends and comrades. And the book that gave us the greatest collection of plays ever written. It's the early 1580s. And a youthful William, barely 20 years old, full of hope and expectation, walks out of Stratford-upon-Avon, leaving behind him his wife Anne and their children. Stratford was a small market town of 2,000 people. Its road names, Bull Street, Sheep Street, Saffron Street, describe a world of farmers and country merchants. Shakespeare's own father, was a successful glove merchant. Who became alderman and mayor of Stratford. Probably not best pleased that his eldest son wanted to join the theatre. But Will set out on his four-day walk to London. Covering some 100 miles. Probably in late spring, when the winter mud and ice had cleared. And the days were longer and the roads and paths safer. His route took him past farms and hamlets. Through the university town of Oxford where he could stay overnight at an inn. As London appeared on the horizon, a pall of smoke rose above the capital. Old St Paul's loomed high above the houses. And the sounds of England's largest city beckoned William on. He strode through Cheapside Market, with street sellers shouting their wares. Bakers, 
butchers and costermongers selling every kind of food. The smell of fresh loaves from Bread Street stores. Mooing cows milked on Milk Street. Thousands of fish gutted on Gutter Lane. Baskets of chickens clucking at poultry. Hundreds of pigs and sheep herded through the crowded market. London was young and loud. Most people were dead before they even reached the age of 40. The city was dominated by its blue-stockinged apprentices. Young bucks, bollock-dackers swinging by their hips. Hotheads, who would shout and applaud at William's plays in the years to come. London offered everything for a young man on the make. But could Will really make money as a player here? A small-town boy in a big city of 200,000 people. Determined, he headed to the northeast corner of London. The very edge of the city. The parish of Holywell at Shoreditch. Where England's first dedicated playhouse, named for its purpose, the theatre, had burst onto the scene in 1576. Maybe William had a letter of introduction to the playhouse. Or maybe he talked his way into a job as a lowly horse porter. Either way, his new life had begun. A 30-year love-hate relationship with London that would take him from country boy to the greatest writer in England. The theatre and its sister house, The Curtain, stood on the edge of the city, just outside London's ancient walls and the control of the city authorities who hated the theatres. London's playhouses were a new kind of building. The centrepieces of the Tudor Pleasure District. Standing side by side with the stews and brothels. Often run by the theatre owners in tandem with their playhouses. At the same time that Shakespeare arrived in the capital, two young girls from William's hometown of Stratford had run away to London to find an illicit income. And it's likely that William knew these young hopefuls. Shakespeare set up house in Shoreditch. Lodging and working alongside his fellow actors, writers and theatre men. A stone's throw from the playhouses, inns, taverns and brothels. His friends and neighbours included the up-and-coming playwright, Christopher Marlowe and Richard Tarleton, the famous comedy actor and ad-libbing clown. Tarleton was the first actor to model his characters on what the Elizabethans referred to as natural fools and simpletons. Queen Elizabeth I loved Tarleton and would call him to court when she wanted cheering up. It's likely that Hamlet's speech about deceased court jester Yorick was written in memory of Tarleton. Shakespeare celebrating the late comic with the famous lines... Alas! Poor Yorick! I knew him, Horatio. A fellow of infinite jest, of most excellent fancy. Shakespeare's lifelong friendship and rivalry with Ben Jonson began at the Hoxton and Spitalfields theatres. They had very different personalities. According to one biographer, young William was... Very ready and pleasant, a handsome and smooth wit, while Ben Jonson was more quarrelsome. Though educated at the prestigious Westminster School, 
Johnson started out as a bricklayer and soldier before he became a writer. One evening in the Shoreditch Players' neighbourhood, he crossed paths with the actor Gabriel Spencer. Hellraiser Spencer was not a man to be messed with. Two years earlier, the actor had stuck his sword in the eye of a barber's son and killed him. And when Spencer quarrelled with Johnson, the writer challenged him to a duel. As an actor, Spencer had trained for fight scenes. But he spent the day of the duel drinking. As Spencer staggered around, waving his long sword... Soldier Johnson swiped back, and within minutes, Spencer was dead at his feet. Johnson was arrested and charged with murder. But his Westminster school learning saved his life. Educated Johnson asked to be tried in a clerical court, where he was given a verse from the Latin Bible. If he could read it, he would not be sent to the hanging tree at Tyburn. So instead of being hanged, Johnson was branded on the thumb with a T for Tyburn. We don't know what William made of his friend's behaviour. Arguments, fights and feuds were part of daily life in the theatre districts of Elizabethan London. But Shakespeare avoided conflict. Ben Jonson referred to him as... Gentle Will. And Shakespeare gave us a clue about his attitude to fighting for so-called honour in a speech by his character of Falstaff. What is honour? A word. What is in that word, honour? What is that honour? Eh. Who hath it? He that died a Wednesday, doth he feel it? No. Doth he hear it? No. Oh, none of it. With thee, Will, I first begin. An upstart crow, beautified with our feathers, that with his tiger heart, wrapped in a player's hide, supposes he's as well able to bombast out a blank verse as the best. And being an absolute Johannes factotum, is in his conceit the only shake scene in the country. It is a pity men of rare wits should be subject to such rude grooms. Trust them not. Let their works serve to witness against their own wickedness. These painted monsters, who I doubt not will drive the best-minded to despise them. A whole book cannot contain their wrongs. This rant appeared in 1592. Under the title, A Groat's Worth of Wit. Fired off on his deathbed by writer Robert Greene. And if the reference to the shake scene does not identify the target... His parody of a line from Shakespeare's Henry VI... O tiger's heart, wrapped in a woman's hide... ...makes it clear who he is talking about. Green was a successful author, probably the first Englishman to support himself from writing. Educated at Cambridge, he was one of the so-called university wits a jealous snob who resented Shakespeare's success. 
unwilling to acknowledge anyone who had not studied at Oxford or Cambridge. A familiar theme today among an elitist clique who claimed that William the Stratford Grammar School boy could never have written Shakespeare's plays. And today, Green's university writing has slipped into obscurity. What Will did to anger Green, other than write popular plays, is unknown. But the bilious broadside tells us that Shakespeare had made a name for himself. As a key member of London's best-loved theatre companies. Working with the greatest players in England, including... Richard Burbage. Son of theatre impresario James. The finest actor of his generation, who played the title role in many of Shakespeare's plays. The first actor to perform Hamlet. As well as Othello, Richard III, Romeo, Macbeth and King Lear. Edward Allen was another Elizabethan theatre star. Big Ed was known for his burly stature. He played the title roles in Christopher Marlowe's plays. And, according to the contemporary historian John Aubrey... Mr Allen, being a tragedian and one of the original actors in many of the celebrated Shakespeare plays, in one of which he played a demon surprised by an apparition of the devil. In 1591... Another theatre argument broke out. Actor Allen quarrelled with the theatre owner James Burbage. Probably about money and the actor's fees. Allen took off with a cartload of props, playbooks and costumes. And with a large part of Burbage's acting company. Headed across the Thames to set up the Rose Theatre. But William stayed with the Shoreditch players. He was now the company playwright. Producing his ten history plays. Exciting playgoers with fights, murders, wars, rebellions, duels, severed heads, comedy, slapstick, drinking and sex. But in 1592, the theatres were in trouble. A riot broke out among apprentices who had gathered to see a play. And the authorities closed the playhouses for three months. No sooner had they reopened than plague ravaged the city. Over 10,000 people, more than one in 20 Londoners, died in the scourge. And the theatre companies were banished from London. Forced to travel the country, searching out inns and towns that would allow them to perform. Ever resourceful, Shakespeare turned to poetry. In 1593, penning the poem Venus and Adonis. This racy tale of lusty love... ..with humans, gods and even horses falling for each other... ..was a bestseller. ..reprinted ten times during Shakespeare's life. He followed this up with another epic poem... ..The Rape of Lucrece, reprinted eight times. Both poems were dedicated to the Earl of Southampton... ..with these fulsome lines... The love I dedicate to your lordship is without end. What I have done is yours. What I have to do is yours. Whether the Earl paid Shakespeare as the poem's patron is not clear. Some claim that Southampton and Shakespeare were lovers. And in one portrait, the young Earl is depicted as an Elizabethan cross-dresser. Wearing lipstick, rouge and an elaborate double earring. He could be the fair youth written about in Shakespeare's sonnets. And many academics and writers have speculated on William's London lovers. But we will never know if he had any other partner than his Stratford wife, Anne.
When the plague finally subsided, the theatres burst back into London life. With two playhouses vying for supremacy. Allen's Rose Theatre on the south side of the city, across the river on the bank side. And Shakespeare's players in Shoreditch. Who were now known as the Lord Chamberlain's Men. Named for their aristocratic patron, the head of Queen Elizabeth's household. With William as actor and lead writer. Six days a week. These dedicated theatre men put on costumes and perform to 2,000 people. Rain or shine. At this time, rather mysteriously, Shakespeare took up residence at Bankside. Across the river, close to the rival Rose and Swan theatres. Maybe William was moonlighting for the rival company. Shakespeare almost certainly worked as an actor at the Rose. And some of his plays, including Titus Andronicus, were first performed there. But now he had a difficult commute to his Shoreditch Theatre. Firstly, William had to find a way across the river. The only crossing being Old London Bridge. Even if he made it through the gatehouse. Gruesomely spiked with the executed heads of traitors. The crossing was packed with tradesmen, shops and livestock being driven to market. And sometimes the bridge was barred when the city gates were closed. In the end, it was Shakespeare's theatre that crossed the river. In 1597, the theatre's financer and manager, James Burbage, died. After the players had buried their guiding light and inspiration in Shoreditch Church, they faced a problem. The lease on the theatre was about to run out. Burbage's son, Cuthbert, desperately tried to renew the agreement. But after many months of negotiations, the company was about to be without a home. They had to take action. A few days after Christmas in 1598, the actors and their workmen secretly took apart the Shoreditch Theatre bringing down the great 30-foot oak beams, weighing tons. Dragging their precious structure across the frozen River Thames, where, according to legend, they built a new theatre overnight. Rather cheekily, right under the nose of the Rose Theatre. Calling their new theatre The Globe. This was not just a theatre for London. Not England. But a playhouse to contain the whole world. Shakespeare spoke about his theatre in his prologue to Henry V. But pardon, gentles all, the flat unraised spirits that have dared on this unworthy scaffold to bring forth so great an object. Can this cockpit hold the vasty fields of France? Or may we cram within this wooden O? the very casks that did affright the air at Agincourt. In truth, their new theatre, the Wooden O, would have taken at least six months to build. Once completed, the Globe stood proud in the Elizabethan Pleasure District. Within minutes walk to the bear gardens, where dogs attacked defenceless bears and bulls for entertainment, while the bloodlusty crowd placed bets on the outcome. The Rose Theatre manager, Philip Henslow, 
also built the Hope Theatre in Southwark. Which put on both plays and animal fights. With a removable stage to make room for the bear and bull fighting. Henslow also operated brothels on the Southwark bankside. Making money from every aspect of Elizabethan pleasure-seeking. But the proud globe was built exclusively for plays. Though maybe they did have a live bear appear in the play A Winter's Tale. Which has the stage direction. Exit, pursued by a bear. Perhaps the globe borrowed the animal from the bear garden. The theatre witnessed Shakespeare's golden period. In 1599, Julius Caesar was staged at the globe. Followed by the big four tragedies, Hamlet, Othello, King Lear and Macbeth performed in a burst of theatrical genius, never matched in English literature. But for all his success, Will was not getting rich from his pen. Writers were paid a one-off fee for a play. Between six and ten pounds. The script was owned by the theatre company or manager. Shakespeare wrote 37 plays earning him a total of some £70,000 in modern money. As much as a Tudor carpenter or goldsmith might make in their working life. In those times, playwrights usually died in poverty. So Shakespeare was never going to get rich from his words. But the Globe was the first theatre owned and run by its actors and writers. And William was a shareholder earning him another £50 a year. Some £30,000 in modern terms. And businessman Shakespeare was buying up property in London. And in Stratford-upon-Avon, where he purchased New Place, the largest house in his hometown. William's theatre on the South Bank made him both famous... ..and wealthy. London, in the early 1600s, was a city of shows. Home to many playhouses. Each one cramming in over 2,000 spectators. With 200,000 living in the city, up to one Londoner in ten would spend the afternoon in the theatre. The Bankside playhouses were the star attractions. At around two o'clock in the afternoon, the flag went up on the theatre. And a trumpet blast sounded. Telling everyone that the play was on. Theatre-goers crossed the river. On London Bridge. Or on water taxis. And packed into the playhouses. The lower orders paid one penny into a ceramic collection box. Allowing them to stand in the open theatre yard below the stage. These were the groundlings. For those who could afford it... Another penny admitted them to the covered gallery. And a further penny gave them a cushion to sit on. The wealthy paid for exclusive seats in the upper gallery called the Heavens. But the richest of nobles handed over big money to sit on the stage itself. Where they could be seen in all of their finery by the thousands of playgoers in the theatre. Elizabethan audiences clapped, booed, cheered and shouted. Showing their disapproval by throwing fruit. Snacks were sold at the playhouse. Tudor theatre-goers munching on oysters, cockles, mussels and periwinkles. And walnuts, raisins, cherries and figs. They even smoked tobacco pipes during the plays. And bought ale. But there were no toilets. 
so people relieved themselves in a communal barrel or bucket that was passed around the yard. The groundlings were notoriously smelly. So the posh gallery playgoers would wave sweet-smelling fruits and herbs under their noses to counter the odour of the... Penny stinkers. The playhouse was full of pickpockets. And prostitutes who worked inside the theatres. The local bankside brothels were licensed and controlled by London's pimping priests, the bishops of Winchester. So the playhouse prostitutes were known as... Winchester geese. Shakespeare even referred to them in his play Troilus and Cressida. My fear is this. Some gold goose of Winchester would hiss. We don't know how long the plays lasted. If all 4,000 lines of Hamlet were performed, it would take four hours. But Shakespeare himself wrote about the... Two hours traffic of our stage, the which, if you with patient ears attend telling us that 90 minutes was enough for Elizabethan audiences before they got restless. Shakespeare's acting company were celebrities. Richard Burbage was the great leading man. And Will Kemp played the comic roles, such as the foolish servant Peter in Romeo and Juliet. But who played Juliet? Well, women were not allowed on stage. So female parts were played by boys. And they were taught to wear the long dresses of queens and princesses. Theatre legend says this is the origin of the word drag. Because the boy actors dragged the dresses across the stage. The actors were not given the entire play, just the lines they had to learn. On a scroll of paper. Giving us the word roll. Literally, the actors... Part. The same play was never performed two days in a row. Actors rehearsed in the morning and performed in the afternoon. Juggling several plays and roles at one time. When each performance was over... The ceramic box with the takings in was taken up to an office at the top of the theatre... Broken open and the takings counted. Giving us the modern term... Box office. With up to 3,000 people in the theatre. Each performance made about £8 for the box office. Part of this would go to pay for the actors. Who earned about 10 shillings a week. And then there were fees for costumes, props and theatre workers. But it was the successful theatre owners who became very rich in the business of shows. There was one person who loved the plays with a passion. But never visited the globe. Queen Elizabeth I. The Queen did not go to the theatre. Because the theatre went to her. On the 28th of December 1594, the Lord Chamberlain's men were preparing to perform for the lawyers of Gray's Inn for their Christmas festivities. With a performance of Shakespeare's newly written play, a Comedy of Errors. The title turned out to be prophetic. Because Shakespeare and the players had been double booked. With a performance planned that same day in Greenwich Palace, commanded by the Queen. Not someone you could fail to turn up for. So the players headed down to Greenwich. And acted in front of the monarch. We know this because we have records of payments from the Royal Purse to William Shakespeare and the players. 
having put a show on for Queen Bess. They piled into boats on the River Thames and desperately rowed back up to central London. But by the time they arrived, it was gone midnight and the stage had been dismantled. Another performance for aristocracy turned out to be a tragedy of errors. Almost terrors. In 1601, the Earl of Essex paid for a one-off performance of Richard II at the Globe. With special instructions to include the scenes where the king was deposed and murdered. For Elizabethans, history plays were not a remote record. But a documentary account of real royal lives. This performance was a prelude to an attempt to arrest the Queen. Depose and replace her with James VI of Scotland. The rebellion failed. And Essex went to the Tower, where he was beheaded. And the Globe players were investigated for treason. Fortunately, they were found innocent. Essex could have kept his head by waiting until 1603. When Queen Elizabeth died. And James VI of Scotland became James I of England. And the Globe players had a new patron. King James himself. As the King's theatre troupe. They took part in the coronation procession. And during Shakespeare's time at the Globe. They performed for the King hundreds of times. In 1602, there was a scandal at the College of Arms in London. The people responsible for creating and controlling aristocratic coats of arms. One herald accused another of granting a coat of arms to... Base persons. Including... Shakespeare, ye player. Acting was not a suitable occupation for a gentleman. And the implication was that in 1596... When Shakespeare's father had been awarded gentleman's status... Cash had been exchanged for the honour. John Shakespeare was an alderman and chief magistrate in Stratford-upon-Avon. But initially had been refused a crest by the College of Arms. But William intervened. And the arms were granted. A coat of arms was an essential symbol of respectability. And William would have paid as much as £20 for the recognition. When Shakespeare's father died in 1601... The honour passed to William. But a year later, the legitimacy of William the actor being awarded the rank of gentleman was questioned. But the chief herald upheld William Shakespeare's claim. Saying that John Shakespeare's rank as bailiff of Stratford qualified him to be a gentleman. This story of snobbery and status reminds us that actors were regarded as rogues and vagabonds in Tudor times. William suffered a family tragedy in 1607. Shakespeare and the players gathered in the choir of St Saviour's Church. Today, Southwark Cathedral. For the funeral of William's younger brother, Edmund. Who had come to London to be an actor. And died aged just 27. Edmund's tomb cost 20 shillings. In prime position, close to the altar in the actor's church way beyond the means of an ordinary player. So William probably paid for his brother's funeral, which included... A forenoon knell of the great bell. And William would have returned to Stratford-upon-Avon to bring his family the sad news. All this was compounded by the death that same year of William's mother, Mary. It's likely that William himself would have read the eulogies for his brother, 
and mother. And nobody could write a eulogy like Shakespeare. Out, out, brief candle. Life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. In June 1613, at the Globe Theatre, during a performance of Shakespeare's Henry VIII, a small cannon fired. Its barrel packed with gunpowder and wadding to create a sound effect. Gunpowder and a straw roof. What could go wrong? A fragment of wadding flew up into the thatch. And the roof? Then the theatre started to burn. In the chaos, one man's pants caught fire. His burning britches extinguished with a bottle of ale. Londoners gazed across the Thames at the burning theatre. Such big news that by the next day, two songs had been printed about the fiery globe. Burned to the ground. A new globe was built on the same site. This time with a tiled, not thatched roof. But the fire marked the end of Shakespeare's time in London. He wrote nothing more and headed back home to Stratford and retirement. His three decades in London marked one of the greatest literary lives ever lived. In 1616, the great man died at his new place home and was buried in the chancel of Stratford's Holy Trinity Church. Half of Shakespeare's works were very nearly lost forever. During the Bard's life, only 19 of his scripts were printed and sold. The rest only recorded in theatre playbooks used for productions. Kept by the actors' companies. So plays such as The Tempest, Julius Caesar and Macbeth would have been titles on a list of lost plays. If it had not been for Shakespeare's friends. In 1623, at William Jaggard's shop, at the sign of the Half Eagle and Key in Barbican, a printing press was pushing metal to paper. Two of his actor companions, Henry Condell and John Hemmings, dedicated themselves to preserving his memory by publishing the Bard's life works. They wanted people to read an official version of his plays. Not the pirated copies of Shakespeare's plays sold by unscrupulous booksellers. As Hemmings and Condell described them, Stolen and surreptitious copies, maimed and deformed by frauds and stealths of injurious impostors. A bootleg hamlet was published with the immortal lines we know today. To be or not to be, that is the question. Written as... To be or not to be, aye, there's the point. So Hemmings and Condell brought together original copies of the plays in one volume. Now offered to your view cured and perfect of their limbs, and all the rest absolute in their numbers as he conceived them. A sort of posthumous director's cut. The collection is known as the First Folio. Featuring 36 plays, it's the only reliable text for 20 of Shakespeare's works. First published in 1623... Some 750 copies were made. Selling for about one pound. Today, 235 are known to remain. In public libraries, 
museums and private collections. Good copies sell at auction for more than £5 million. Shakespeare's great friend, Ben Jonson, helped make the book. Writing in the dedication. While I confess thy writings to be such as neither man nor muse can praise too much. Hailing Shakespeare as the soul of the age, the applause, delight, the wonder of our stage. The book contains one of the only definitive likenesses of Shakespeare. Commissioned by his actor friends, we assume that the illustration must look like William. But as Johnson wrote, a picture cannot encapsulate the greatness of the man. Telling us that it is his words that are the true legacy. Look not on his picture, but on his book. But let's leave the last word to the man himself. In Shakespeare's last play, The Tempest, many people think that Will himself played the part of Prospero. And that the character is autobiographical, the bard signing off with a final goodbye to his Globe Playhouse, to theatre and to life itself. Our revels now are ended. These are actors, as I foretold you, were all spirits and are melted into air, into thin air. And like the baseless fabric of this vision, the cloud-capped towers, the gorgeous palaces, the solemn temples, the great globe itself, yea, all which it inherit, shall dissolve. And like this insubstantial pageant faded, leave not a rack behind. We are such stuff as dreams are made on, and our little life is rounded with a sleep. This Extraordinary Stories of Britain podcast was written and produced by Mark Zakian. It was narrated with Laura Adams from Women Inspire, with music and voices from Tony Lewis. Music by Alexander Nakarada is licensed under Creative Commons 4.0. For more episodes, visit storiesofbritain.com and subscribe to our podcast.